hppodcraft.com. You know something about the human body. I've had some experience. Every night in the year, four of us sat in the small parlor of the George at Debenham. The undertaker and the landlord and Fett and myself. Sometimes there would be more, but blow high, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, we four would each be planted in his own particular armchair. That is from the first paragraph of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Body Snatcher. And you're listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. You're at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you are listening to the free episode of the month. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the show. For the low, low price of $2.22 a month. Or $6.66 per quarter. Whoa. Evil. You can get four episodes a month. Three of those are just for subscribers. And it goes to... uh, helping us keep the show going. Also, when you subscribe, if you're a new subscriber, you're going to get almost 40 shows. Stuff from The Yellow Wallpaper to Rudyard Kipling's work to Ambrose Bierce, all stories that H.P. Lovecraft recommended. Yep. And he, of course, was the subject of our first 120 free shows. Yep. But the new stuff we've been covering is great as well. If you've been waiting around, now's the time to strike. Now, who was uh, that reader we just heard there? <laughs> our reader, Chad, was none other than Academy Award nominee, Chris Sarandon. Yay! I'm so glad we finally got him on the show. That's great. Yeah, actually, we met Chris doing A Shark Off on the Roof. He was in that. Yeah, that's right. He was. That's when we met him. And then he did our movie, The Chosen One. And of course, uh, he was Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. And Mm -hmm. he's the voice of Jack Skellington and my favorite character, Jerry Dandridge from Fright Night. Fright Night. He was nominated for Dog Day Afternoon, the Al Pacino film, which is great performance. He's great in that. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful actor. And we're so glad to have him on the show. Thanks, Chris. Why don't we just get into what's happening in the story? So the story starts off, you got four guys that hang out in a pub in England. Mm -hmm. They go by The Undertaker, not to be confused with the professional wrestler, (laughs) The Landlord, Fetz, and our narrator. Now, there's a great film that we could talk about later uh, of The Body Snatcher, and I just watched it again last night, and Fetz, they were calling Fetties. Oh. When I looked up the name, I actually searched, how do you pronounce this name? And most people said Fetz, kind of like Boba Fett, so that's what we went with, but Uh uh, I guess it could be Fetties as well. Right. And they, they call Fetties the doctor, yeah. the undertaker, the landlord in the area. They call him the doctor, although they're not really sure if he is one. He's produced some notions that maybe he has some medical skill, but yeah. for the most part, he's just a drunk, right? Yeah, he's a guy who drinks uh, five glasses of rum a night. He's an older Scotsman. He just shows up. He gets drunk. He kind of spits out some stories occasionally. But for the most part, they're not too sure of his credibility. This is kind of appealing to me. As, a, as an American that's moved over to England, I kind of long... For this mythical pub that exists where they have these high-backed chairs. Yeah. Because that's what it, it kind of lays it out, where they're, where they're sitting in these really nice leather chairs, and they have sure. their own spot, like, kind of tucked away in this in this inn. It's an inn, but it's also a pub. They call it the, the George Inn. They just hang out and talk to each other about man stuff and drink. Yeah, you don't have that? No. I thought maybe that you were in that lifestyle now, like you gathered around the fire with some other professionals at night. No. You don't go down to the Turkey and do that? The, the Turkey is my pub of choice. It's a local oh. village. It's really nice. It's a great place, but it, it doesn't quite have this atmosphere. I don't think that this kind of place exists anymore. It's probably a product of the late 19th century, but... A man can still dream, can he? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I did assume when I was a kid that I was, this was going to be what I was doing nightly when I grew up, sitting in some <laughs> kind of lodge, right. discussing intellectual things around a fire instead of at home drinking Sprite watching Arrested Development or something. <laughs> I didn't know that that, that was going to be how things would turn out, but I thought it'd be much more interesting. 
<laughs> so one night, a doctor is called down from London for one of the people that are staying at the inn. Yeah. And this is kind of a new thing because the rail had just come into Debenham where this is set. Mm-hmm. And so it's odd for somebody to come in from London just to treat a patient. They're naturally curious about who this doctor is. And when he arrives, they ask, well, what's his name? And the landlord says, Dr. McFarlane. Fetz kind of just goes, what, 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 what did you say? And they're like, Dr. McFarlane, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. Fetz kind of starts getting all weird and stuff. He's drunk, but then he kind of sobers up quickly and they go, wait, do you know him? Do you know the doctor? And then he just kind of goes, ah, well, you know. Yeah. And then he goes, well, I hear him leaving. He's leaving right now. And he's like, what? And he goes after him to, to see who he is. Yeah, he says, I got to see him face to face. He calls down the stairs to him and he says, McFarlane. And then the dude kind of looks over and he, and he says, Toddy McFarlane? This guy, McFarlane, kind of says, oh, hey, it's you. I thought you might have been dead. You're alive. Wow, great. <laughs> yeah, you could tell seeing uh, Fetz kind of upsets him a little bit. He says, yeah. Fetz, you. Uh, and, <laughs> and he's well-dressed. You know, he, he seems like a pretty well-to-do doctor. But running into this old drunk, clearly there's some history here. Fetz kind of yells at him. They just have a bit of a, we don't really understand why. He's angry at him. The guy sort of apologizes, sort of doesn't. And then he just beats feet out of the pub. And that's it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing where McFarlane's says, hey, I, I probably have some money I could give you. Give me your address. I'm going to send you some money. Why, why he wants to do that, I don't know. But Fett yeah. says, ha, I got money from you before, and it's still laying where I cast it in the street. Basically says, I don't want any, any money from you. I just had to see you because I wanted to know, after all, if there was a God. And now that I've seen you, I know that there isn't one. Get out of here. So pretty strong words. Yeah. You know, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, he, he was uh, a non-believer. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And that was some, something that when I read that, that kind of we haven't really talked about Robert Louis. Stevenson, oh, you know what? We? That's right. Because he uh, his parents are very disappointed with him. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> when he when he came out as an atheist. They were, yeah, they're hard, hardcore Presbyterians. I mean, he wanted to be he was into writing and being an artist. And that's what he wanted to do. He's from a very wealthy family. His dad designed lighthouses. Right. Wanted him to be a designer. So he went to engineering school kind of dropped out of engineering school pursued this artist thing and writing and he was super into writing and he got like stuff published when he was 16 i mean he was a pretty outstanding writer his dad said okay look you don't have to be an engineer but you have to have some kind of degree to fall back on go to law school and he did he got like his Mm -hmm. law degree robert louis stevenson was the only child of his of his parents and he was super sickly so he was always moving around to try to get to better environments it was like respiratory problems he would get infections and stuff all the time yeah he had like hemorrhaging lungs they think maybe he had tuberculosis of some kind that was just undiagnosed yeah but it like lasted his whole life yeah. So maybe which it was, was a short life, but yeah. Yeah, he died when he was forty-four, I think. Yeah. So yeah, he lived all over the world, and he ended up in um, Samoa. He married an American, and they were in California. And then I believe they wanted to take a trip out to Hawaii, and, and yep. they wound up in Samoa, and that's where he he passed away. Yeah, and and he was really into being in Samoa. That was colonized by a bunch of English people. Obviously, mm-hmm. the villagers really took to him, and they called him Tusitala, which was Samoan for the teller of tales. He got really involved in local politics because all the politicians that were there, English guys were really corrupt and kind of Mm -hmm. didn't know what the hell they were doing. And he wrote a story called Footnote in History and got these guys fired. Oh, wow. So he was like really active there. Uh, That's where he died. And then they, the Samoans did this really big burial ceremony for him and stuff. And he was super well liked. Well, he was definitely a celebrity living in their land because he had already, you know, Treasure Island and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had, he was one of these writers who was successful in his lifetime. We very rarely cover those, but he yeah. was. And he didn't need it because he was actually already wealthy, but uh, yeah. he had the chance to enjoy his own literary fame in his short life. 
to bring it back around to the thing with his parents before he was as successful as he was, mm-hmm. he had to tell them that he wasn't religious anymore. And I think his dad said something to him like, well, my entire life has been a failure then that I, I tried so hard with you. And, and then you came out not believing and bring it back to the story. Mm-hmm. Fetz is a Scotsman. So is Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, he's an unbeliever. And so is this guy in the story. So I think that there is some kind of parallel between him, Fetz and Stevenson. Sure. Well, certainly, I think the reference is that McFarlane has done something awful. And if there were any justice in the world, he wouldn't be around still treating patients. But he is. And so we know there's no thing. But an important clue is dropped as McFarlane's leaving. It's a a cool little scene because McFarlane actually has to brush past Fetz if he wants to get out. Mm -hmm. And you can see he's reluctant to even come close to him. But as he does, Fetz grabs him by the arm and says, have you seen it again? And then, and then the doctor goes, ah! and he runs out. <laughs> it says he fled out the door like a detected thief, which I thought was a great line. I mean, he runs out so fast that the next day a servant actually finds his glasses laying on the ground. Right. That's how quick he went out there. So everybody, of course, wants to know what's up. What the heck was that about? He says, hey, don't get too involved. That guy McFarlane, not safe to cross him. Those who have done so have already repented it too late. Clearly, McFarlane, in some respect, is... He's done somebody in in the past. We get that impression. Fett says, I'm done drinking, which is really odd for him. He doesn't even finish his third glass of rum. He splits. And the other three return back to their places and start saying, what the heck happened? Each man, before we parted, had his theory that he was bound to prove. And none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track the past of our condemned companion and surprise the secret that he shared with the great London doctor. It is no great boast, but I believe I was a better hand at worming out a story than either of my fellows at the George. And perhaps there is now no other man alive who could narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. So now we're going to get into the actual story of what happened. We find out that Betts studied at medical school. He was, in fact, a doctor, and he was working with this guy who was called Mr. K or Dr. K. He never specifies who this guy is. But it's Fetz and McFarlane were working together in medical school Mm -hmm. for this doctor who was teaching at the medical school. And they were collecting bodies for anatomical research. Now, at the time, you could only get bodies that were of condemned people. It was hard to find bodies, and then they kind of go into grave robbing. Fetty's is an assistant to this Mr. K and he has yeah. to run the basically the classroom where they dissect the bodies and as such he has to receive the bodies and somehow he and McFarland got into some bad business with trying to get these bodies in and it's obviously this whole the setup is really influenced by the Burke and Hare case it was confusing to me when he first said that the teacher of anatomy I'll designate by the letter K and then for the rest of the story when they make reference to him it says Mr. K dot 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 so they're not spelling out the full name and I found that strange because why don't you just say well let, let's just call him George mm-hmm. instead of doing this thing with the initial but actually this is a reference to a real person Dr. Robert Knox that's right for, for some reason I had this book when I was a kid called the people's almanac Mm -hmm. It's put out in the 70s. It just had a lot of different topics in it on all sorts of different subjects. It was just interesting reading. And in the murderers section, there was a whole thing about Burke and Hare. I read it probably. (laughs) murderers section. (laughs) There was a murderers section, and it was about really strange or famous cases. And this was in there, and I... I actually kind of know the case by heart because I read it so many times. It just struck me as so crazy an idea, even as a kid, that you can inadvertently set up an economy for crime. 
just by demanding a certain thing, sort of like the diamond industry is now. We want this, and so people will do really terrible things to get the thing that the person wants. And as long as you continue to purchase it, then you're really supporting the awfulness and, and that sort of sure. thing. More. But but here's what happened with Burke and Hare. William Burke was this Irish guy. He came to Scotland in 1817, and he rented a room from another Irishman, William Hare. Obviously, we go by Burke and Hare because William and William wouldn't be quite as com- compelling. Sure. Now, at the time, uh, as you said, you, you could only get a body if it wasn't executed murderer i think it wasn't even just like a criminal it had to be somebody who's a murderer and were executed for that reason oh wow anatomy was just the science was just starting out you know and they really needed more bodies than that and so body snatchers would go and rob graves i was just reading up on this again and thing that struck me as odd is it's actually a pretty safe thing to do as far as criminal law was concerned if you robbed a grave you could get you could get deported or there could be huge fines but what they did is as long as they left the belongings behind then they couldn't really be convicted of any serious crime. Right. Oh. So they would they would strip the bodies naked and leave all their things there and then take just the body, which is such an inversion of what grave robbers would normally do, which is open the grave, take all the jewelry and leave the person there. Yeah. So 1827, you know, about 10 years after these guys knew each other, one of mm-hmm. Hare's tenants at the boarding house died owing him some cash. Since this guy didn't have any immediate family, the authorities had come and they put him in a coffin in his place. And Hare says to Burke, hey, why don't we go in there and take the body? I know we can sell it to this guy, Robert Knox, right. who runs an anatomy school, and he's not too picky about his specimens. So they take the body out of the coffin. They hide it in a bed. They fill the coffin with bark. Nobody's any the wiser. They get like seven pounds out of it. Wow. And seven pounds is a lot of money back then. And, and, and in fact, they go, well, that was pretty easy loot. So a little later... One of Hare's lodgers was dying, but not really going fast enough. So they came oh, and in. They and smothered him. They, sm- they smothered him. And that was a 10 pound payoff. And that was the thing. Because when you smothered them, their bodies were in perfect condition for anatomy stuff. Exactly. And this be- this actually became a uh, a verb to burke somebody meant to smother them or, to, you know, to hold your hand over their mouth. Yeah. When they were convicted for this crime and Burke was hung, the crowd was was yelling, burke him, burke him, as in don't hang him, smother him oh, the way he did him. in his, his victims. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hare... Mm-hmm didn't go to jail burke no. had to take the whole rap for it right yeah the thing that was really galling to a lot of folks is that knox and Hare got off Hare turned state's evidence when they were once they were caught against burke for some reason oh. burke refused to do the same thing against the other guys so he took the rap for everything and he was hung and Hare, as far as anybody knows took on an assumed name and lived out the rest of his life fine as did dr knox in fact i think dr knox even stayed in london and they make reference to him here in the story when it says a certain extramural teacher of anatomy, whom I shall here designate by the letter K, his name was subsequently too well known. The man who bore it skulked through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise while the mob applauded the execution of Burke. It's clearly yeah. Knox that they're talking. Yeah, about. it's him. So just to zip up this Burke and Hare story real quick, the thing that blew me away when I was actually reading about it recently is that their wives and girlfriends were involved in this, too. Hare had a, a wife. And Burke Uh had this mistress named Helen McDougal. And they were helping out with the operation, luring drunks and prostitutes into the boarding house. I mean, what they would do is they'd get people in, they'd ply them with drink till they were basically insensible, and then it was very easy to smother them. And that was kind of the game. But they'd use the women to do it as well. Wow. And they finally got caught. There was a woman named Mary Doherty who was missing. Basically, they had been bringing in bodies that were a little too familiar to the students. One of the students recognized the body. That's what happened, right? Yeah, well, there was a girl named Mary Patterson who was 18-year-old, very voluptuous, Kind of familiar to some of the students there. So when they brought her in, they not only knew her face, but they knew her body as well. So it was like, hold on a second. Oh. This, <laughs> this isn't right. So eventually people got suspicious. And, they, and that's what happened. But this is one of those really notorious cases and yeah. obviously was the inspiration for this. I think this is obviously happening before 
that case went public. Presumably, Burke and Hare are working for this doctor at the same time that Fetz and McFarland are. Another character gets introduced here, mm-hmm. this guy, Gray. I take it that Gray is the actual guy who robs graves and maybe kills people to get bodies, whereas these two guys are medical students, so they don't actually get their hands dirty. Their job is to look the other way. Right. As it says in the story when it's talking about what Fett's role was for Knox. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him, as well as to his master. In that large and busy class, the raw material of the anatomists kept perpetually running out. And the business thus rendered necessary was not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all who were concerned. It was the policy of Mr. K to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade. They bring the body and we pay the price, he used to say, dwelling on the alliteration, quid pro quo. And again, somewhat profanely, ask no questions, he would tell his assistants, for conscience sake. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the crime of murder. <laughs> of dun, murder. Dun, dun. Yeah, no, that really needed like a thunder crash after it. Let's let's try that again. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the crime of murder. There we Ooh, go. There we go. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Much more dramatic. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, Fetz, here's the thing. He's basically like a he's a functioning alcoholic even at that time in his life. He does his job really well all day. Mm-hmm. And then at night, he just gets rip roaring drunk. And so at night, when they pull him out of bed to make these deliveries to the dissection room, he kind of insensibly goes, yeah, all right, whatever. He pays him. He notices that the subjects look pretty fresh, but he just kind of does his duty until until some guys come in and deliver a new body. And he happens to look down at the body and God almighty, he cried. That is Jane Galbraith. The men answered nothing, but they shuffled nearer the door. I know her, I tell you, he continued. She was alive and hearty yesterday. It's impossible she could be dead. It's impossible. You should have got this body fairly. Sure, sir, you're mistaken entirely, said one of the men. But the others looked fit darkly in the eyes and demanded the money on the spot. This confirms to Fetz that some bad business is play is going on. But Fetz pays them. And Fetz pays them. And then this is when they introduce Dr. McFarlane in the past, who uh, basically is his superior in the pecking order. There's Knox uh-huh. and then McFarlane and then Fetz. And McFarlane shows up a little earlier than usual because you get the sense that he probably knows Fetz is acting up a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. So the next day he shows up. Or Fetz is saying, hey, man, this looks fishy. What happened? Farland says, oh, you know, Lee said soonest mended, I should say. And he's like, yeah, but I think they freaking killed her. You know, he goes, well, come on. You know what's going on. Don't be stupid. You know what's yeah. happening. And you're turning a blind eye and we're all turning a blind eye. And that's just how it is. He goes, look, for me, you know, there's one thing certain that practically speaking, all our subjects have been murdered, <laughs> which didn't even wow. occur to Fetz. <laughs> wow. And he says, you know, well, look, why did Knox choose us two for his assistance? Fetz, I'll tell you, because he didn't want old wives. It reminded me almost like when you watch that documentary, um, The Smartest Guys in the Room or whatever that was about Enron, how corporate complicity happens when those sorts of things are going on, when people are breaking rules and how yeah. all the way down the line, this conversation happens over and over. Hey, look, as far as you know, it's already happened and you're complicit in it actually already. So why don't you just mind your own business? Everybody's doing this. It's no big deal. Just right. pretend it's not happening. 
Well, one afternoon, you'd said that we introduced this gray character, and here's where it happens. Pets goes into the tavern, and when he gets there, McFarlane's already there, and he's sitting with this guy. This most offensive person took a fancy to Fetz on the spot, plied him with drinks, and honored him with unusual confidences on his past career. If a tenth part of what he confessed were true, he was a very loathsome rogue, and the lad's vanity was tickled by the attention of so experienced a man. I'm a pretty bad fellow myself, the stranger remarked. But McFarlane is the boy. Toddy McFarlane, uh, I call him. Toddy, order your friend another glass. Or it might be, Toddy, you jump up and shut the door. Toddy hates me, he said again. Oh, yes, Toddy, you do. Don't call me that confounded name, growled McFarlane. Hear him. Do you ever see the lads play knife? He would like to do that all over my body, remarked the stranger. We medicals have a better way than that, said Fitz. When we dislike a dead friend of ours, we dissect him. McFarland looked up sharply, as though this jest was scarcely to his mind. This guy is being a real jerk to McFarland, mm-hmm. and McFarland's taking it. Like, he orders all this food... And all this drink, he doesn't pay for any of it. McFarlane covers it. What the heck's going on? It seems obvious that this guy, his name's Gray, has mm-hmm. something on McFarlane. And then at four in the morning, after this whole thing, after McFarlane's been embarrassed all night by this man, the knock comes, the well-known signal comes to the door of the dissecting lab, and Fetz gets up to open it up and let McFarlane in. And McFarlane says, hey, I've got a body. You'd better look at the face. And he does, and it's... It's Gray. He's shocked by the whole thing. He's like, whoa, 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 you can't, what did you do? And he goes, don't worry about it. Just pay me the money and go on. He goes, pay you? Mm -hmm. Pay you for killing this guy? And he goes, hey, look, you got to pay me. Everything's got to look like it's on the up and up and that, you know, that we're not involved. This is just our standard deal. Don't rock the boat. Well, all we got to do is you pay me and then uh, dissect this like normal. This is the same as Jane Galbraith. He says, uh, and Richardson may have the head. So he wants to get the head off of this body, separate the whole thing, kind of destroy the evidence. Right. And this guy, Richardson, has been really anxious about the head. It put me in mind of this book I read called Stiff by an author named Mary Roach. She's a popular science author. That book, Stiff, is just all about what happens to corpses and how do we decay and all the different topics of what your body does after you die. But one thing that just really blew me away, and I don't know why this never occurred to me, is that when you donate your body to science, which I'm going to mm-hmm. do, you know, I, the heads go to plastic surgeons in training. Oh, weird. She talks about going into this lab and they turn on the lights and there's all these heads lined up for the plastic surgeons to come in and practice their rhinoplasty, which of course makes sense. Yeah. You know, they've got to do it in a safe way at some point. But isn't that odd that you could donate your organs and here you're thinking that some kid's going to get a heart or, you know, you're going to save somebody's life. And it's like, no, they're going to take your head and you're going to give you a nose job. (laughs) But anyway, says, yeah, we got to get the records. All right. You got to pay me. That's very important. Once he does pay him, it says. The die was cast. You know, Fetz is in this just as much yeah. as McFarlane now. They're in it together. And Fetz, he's got a bad conscience about it. He's really nervous about it. And and McFarlane says to him, in a few days, this isn't even going to bother you. Yeah. You'll you'll laugh at this. Yeah, you're a man. Don't be a wimp about this. And yeah. you're going to realize that this is what a man does. And you're going to be fine with it because you're, you are a man. You're made of stern stuff. And, you know, kind of com- compliments him a little bit. And he's right. In a few days, he's just like, yeah, you know what? That guy was probably a criminal and a bad dude, and oh well, who cares? And the two actually kind of fall out of 
routine with each other. They do. It's a very typical criminal thing. I think that actually uh, McFarlane warns him now, don't go buy any fur coats, you know, because <laughs> yeah. he could, when he pays him for the body, McFarlane gives him the money back and says, there you go. You deserve a little uh, yeah. filthy lucre for what we just did. So he gives him some dough, but says, you know, he's like De Niro and Goodfellas. Don't don't go out and be flashy about this. Mm-hmm. And then the two kind of don't hang out with each other for a while. But then the occasion arises where there's a freshly buried body out in a rustic graveyard that Mr. Knox gets wind of. And he says, Mm -hmm. you guys go out there and get it. And there's this great description. So we're getting to the end of the story here. And there's really great writing, especially in this section where Stevenson describes small town graveyards and how they're kind of easy to desecrate (laughs) in a way uh, because (laughs) of their remoteness. And um, we're not going to go through it, but I, I. this is my favorite part of the story when they describe the voyage out to this rural graveyard by Fetz McFarland to go pick up this body, which is the wife of a farmer. And it says uh, she was 60 years old and had been known for nothing but good butter and a godly conversation. <laughs> <laughs> they get out there, they, they dig her up, they wrap her up in some, some cloth, get her, get her in the back of the carriage, start riding off, going back to town. The scenario is that the body is in between them in the carriage and it keeps falling over back and forth. First, it's mm-hmm. on McFarland's shoulder, then it's on Fett's shoulder, and they, they're kind of pushing it back and forth. Neither of them like this very much. No. There's a funny thing where it says, McFarland made some ill-favored jest about the farmer's wife, but it came hollowly from his lips and was allowed to drop in silence. <laughs> That's a good one. I love that. That's good right in there. What, what do you think the jest was? Psst. Good butter? Butter face, more likely. <laughs> but then nobody laughed. <laughs> so inappropriate. <laughs> Wait, this is mine. This is mine. Uh, I know we wanted these bodies fresh, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, because she keeps like her hand keeps falling on it. Yeah. And then it's just quiet, just quiet, nothing. All comedy dies on that trip. There's a section here that I thought was definitely, I mean, this could have been written by Lovecraft. When they're talking about, uh, as they're writing, the bundle seems like it's getting larger or something, or there's something's changing in it. Mm-hmm. And this little section says, all over the countryside and from every degree of distance, the farm dogs accompanied their passage with tragic ululations, and it grew and grew upon his mind that some unnatural miracle had been accomplished, that some nameless change had befallen the dead body, and that it was in fear of their unholy burden that the dogs were howling. I mean, that sounds like Lovecraft. You've got nameless, tragic ululations. You've got yeah. dogs going at it. Definitely, you can see the influence yeah absolutely it becomes so disturbing to mcfarland that he asks for a light i need to see what's going on here i gotta look at the body and then he says it's it's not a woman Fetz is going hey it was we put a woman in that bag show the light show me the light we must see the face and as Fetz took the lamp his companion untied the fastenings of the sack and drew down the cover from the head the light fell very clear upon the dark well-molded features and smooth shaven cheeks of a too familiar countenance, often beheld in dreams of both of these young men. A wild yell rang up into the night. Each leaped up from his own side into the roadway. The lamp fell, broke, and was extinguished. And the horse, terrified by this unusual commotion, bound and went off toward Edinburgh at a gallop, bearing along with it, sole occupant of the gig, the body, of the dead and long dissected gray. That's the end of the story. It is. But what the hell? Uh, it's funny. I got an email from you the other day that just said, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I knew what you were talking about. It's a pretty crazy ending to the story. It's crazy, but it's also not that scary. I mean, what's the threat of a dead body? It's like one dead body turns into another dead body. Who cares? The point is that they're being haunted now because of what they did. I know that there's an earlier example of this, but I keep thinking about that creep show too. <laughs> there was a section called Thanks for the Ride Lady where it was like a yeah. a hitchhiker, a woman runs over a hitchhiker. Yeah. And then he keeps showing up on the road. Yeah. And she kills him, but he gets grosser and grosser, right? But every time she passes him by, he shows up again and shows up again. And it's this kind of thing because earlier in the story when he said to him, "Have you seen it again?" The idea is that Gray is forever going to haunt them now. I get that. But as a corpse? As a corpse? Corpse not scary. If he was standing in the road? Okay, that's scary. That would be scary to me. The way that it's described, it almost sounds like it actually physically metamorphoses into his body because they said the, the wrappings look like they were getting bigger. Yeah. So did it actually physically change into his body? And then if so, I would be freaked out for a few minutes mm-hmm. and then go, okay, that, huh? Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is, is my are my eyes making a mistake here? And then I would look at the body and like touch it and go, "Wait, no, it's a dude's body." Like, yeah. This does this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Let's take it to the lab and and, <laughs> and figure out what the heck happened here. It's just I mean, it's just a corpse. It's not a threat. It's emotionless dead thing. I mean, it's one corpse turns into another corpse. Crazy. I understand they're feeling guilty. I understand they're being haunted. But if that's what happened, and then if it's not what happened, and they, their mind's playing a trick on them, and it's actually the woman's body, then your mind's playing a trick on you. You're losing your mind a little bit. I can understand being freaked out by it. But for all the buildup of the story, I was wanting something more scary than just, you know, sure. a corpse that looks like a different corpse. Well, I think that Stevenson's really trying to create this weird effect. I mean, you have to take into the whole idea that just the context of it. They're out in this country graveyard that is a pretty spooky occupation for them to begin with. They've gathered up this body. And then I think of it more like, I mean, you know, dude, I mean, we've gotten scared by plastic bags in cemeteries. Sure. When we've sure. So I, I think it's just that <laughs> it's this creepy setting. And then when they open it up and see that it's gray, there's not even time to go, oh, gosh, that's a corpse. They just go, boom, they run away <laughs> because they don't know what it's going to do. It's the last thing they expected to see. Right. And they know they're both complicit in this murder. But I hear what you're saying. The interesting thing is, is that the movie, The Body Snatcher. Right. The 1945 movie, it's really Boris good. Karloff, but they, yeah. they, I saw yeah. a, a trailer to it, and it looked pretty cool. They really play up the idea of it being uh, a haunting, because as they're writing the gig at the end, you hear Karloff's voice going, Toddy. Karloff plays Cabman Gray. You know, he's he's in his head. He's going, Toddy, Toddy, I'll never leave you, Toddy. Remember I told you I'll never So you hear him. Yeah, that's great. And then when they stop, they open it up. It's really McFarlane who's convinced that the body's in there. Fetz shows him the light. It's Karloff, but I, I don't even know if Fetz sees it. He jumps right. out of the carriage, and then it goes off crazy, and McFarland's stuck in there with Karloff's body that's rolling up against him, and the carriage goes off the road, and then he dies. And when Fetz comes around to look, it's just the woman's body. So it's as if it was only in McFarland's head. That seems like a better ending to me. It might be. I recommend that anybody see that movie. It was that great series of um, Val Luton movies that right. RKO produced. What did Lovecraft have to say about this story? Did he say anything specifically? Oh, yeah. We should bring that up, huh? Because most yeah. of the stories, are, if you haven't listened to the show, what, we, what we've what we been doing in this phase of it is covering stories that Lovecraft wrote about in supernatural horror and literature. Right. He bundled up Stevenson with um, other other 19th century authors like uh, Le Fanu, Wilkie Collins, who Ken was talking about a right. lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conan Doyle, H.G. Wells. And then he says Robert Louis Stevenson, despite an atrocious tendency toward jaunty mannerisms. What does that mean? 
I don't know. Created permanent classics in Markheim, The Body Snatcher, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Basically, he says, The Body Snatcher belongs to this tradition of contemporary horror tales that specialize in events rather than atmospheric details, address the intellect rather rather than the impressionistic imagination, cultivate a luminous glamour rather than a malign tensity or psychological verisimilitude, and take a definite stand in sympathy with mankind and its welfare. It has its undeniable strength, and because of its human element, commands a wider audience than does the sheer artistic nightmare. If not quite so potent as the latter, it is because a diluted product can never achieve the intensity of a concentrated essence. <laughs> well, it's kind of a slam. <laughs> uh, he's saying that he's really effective at writing a traditional story, basically. But he's also saying that a traditional story is weak sauce compared to the power of, of the nightmarish tale. That's what you're saying. It, Yeah. It is what I'm saying. You're going, well, this was fine, but at the end, it didn't really frighten me. It was weird, but who cares? And I yeah. think that's what Lovecraft's saying, which is, well, the, the humans are the center of this, and it's kind of plot-driven. You know, it's more about what happens to them. It, it explores psychological intricacies of committing crimes. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it really doesn't quite approach that artistic, weird fiction that he's driving at in his literature, where... You really feel that touch of the outside that, yeah. touch, you know, the things aren't quite right. The occurrence in the end is definitely a weird occurrence. I mean, there's no it, it's it's different than a traditional ghost story. This yeah. isn't some like sheet draped Cabman Gray that shows up. It's actually his corpse. So this is an odd thing that happens. It's really strange. I mean, they both saw it. So did that mean it actually physically changed into his body? I don't know. Because, you know, they, again, I, and if that is the case, that is weird, man. <laughs> It's it's a weird way to to articulate a haunting in a, in a ghost story. So I think that might be why it impressed Lovecraft. But I see his point that these things are it's a plot driven little story. Yeah, more people are going to like it than they're going to like something that's purely impressionistic. I think that that wraps up the story, and I want to thank our reader Chris Sarandon for knocking it out of the park. So flipping cool. I, I love him. I've got a complete man crush on him. So glad that we could have him on the show finally. Yeah, Chris, thank you so much. Next week, we're doing The House and the Brain, which sounds like an amazing name for a story. And that's by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Right. He of the It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. <laughs> also, I mean, you know, there's other things he invented, like the the pen is mightier than the sword. That's a, Whoa. That's, a, that's him? That's him. Holy cow. Well, I'm, now I'm interested. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a subscriber, you'll be able to listen to that story. If not, you'll have to wait till next month for our next free show. That's right. And then in August, we're going to be in Providence doing a live version of our show at the yeah. Necronomicon convention. We know that we're going to be doing the show on the Saturday of the convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know the exact time or anything like Schedules that. Schedules haven't been set. So as soon as the schedule is set, we'll let everybody know exactly what time it's going to be and get all that information out to everybody. And that's all we have for this week. Thanks so much. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.